you will please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. While you're turning there, have you ever only gotten half of the story? Maybe you've come upon a conversation that's already in progress, and from what you heard, you drew some conclusions, but if you had heard the first half of the conversation, you would have drawn very different conclusions. Or maybe you were there at the beginning of the conversation. But as soon as you thought you heard enough or you heard what you wanted to hear, you switched off. And you didn't hear the rest of what was said. Kids are especially good at that. Right? They hear the, yes, you can play Xbox. And they say, yes, and they switch off. And they never hear the, after you clean up your room and have read for 30 minutes. Oh, is, is that what you said? I, I didn't hear that. Last week, we took a look at the world's most famous verse in all of the Bible. And we looked at it in great detail. Precisely because it is so easy with that verse to only get half the story. It's easy to hear what we want to hear and switch off and miss the rest of what's said. It's easy to hear that one verse and forget to listen to the rest of the paragraph that that verse lives in, getting the other half of the story. This morning, we're going to take a good hard look at the rest of the paragraph that John 3.16 is in. And I want to try to specifically apply it to three types of folks who might be especially prone to miss that second half of the story. So I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Join me in prayer. Oh, Father, would you take these moments... And of all of our moments during the week, would you do something unique in these moments that we share? Of all of your word that we've encountered this week, that we've read, that we've heard, would you take these verses in this moment and would you do something unique? Would you do something powerful? Would you do something for your glory and for our good? We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So these are obviously foundational verses about salvation. 
And so I want to point out three types of folks, three groups, if you will, who might easily miss the second half of the story that these verses tell about salvation. Either they're missing the conversation that's already happened, or they're hearing what they think is enough and they're switching off and checking out and not listening to the rest. Here's group one. Here's person one. This type of, this talk about salvation, it's all nice and well and good, but it's not really that big of a deal because in the end, we're all okay anyway. Because God's just going to save everybody in the end anyway. A, a loving God would never send someone to hell. So that's the first group. We're all okay. The second group would be, they would say, uh, no, that's not right. <laughs> We're not all okay. There are definitely some who are going to reject the offer of salvation that's made in these verses. And this group says, I'm so glad I'm not one of them. Right? And thinks deep down, this group thinks deep down, though we'd likely never say it, certainly out loud, they think they had something to do with the fact that they received rather than rejected this offer of salvation. Right? It was, after all, my choosing to believe in Jesus that saves me. Right? That's group two. The third group says, okay, fine, fine, fine. All this salvation talk, that's well and good, but this salvation thing is a settled issue for me. It happened a long time ago, and these verses really don't apply to me today. And to all three of those types of folks, I would just say, sit tight, let's work our way through these verses and see what we find. There's an outline in your worship folder if that helps you follow along. So how is it that we can end up with only half of the story? How is it that we can hear what we want to hear and then switch off and not listen to what comes next? Last week, John 3.16, so very popular. Everybody loves John 3.16. And so lots of folks stop right there. That's enough for me. That's good. Thank you. There's a lot of folks that don't even mind the next verse. I'm, I'm good with 17. And there's some that don't even mind the one after that. Let, let's try it. Follow along with me. We're going to read along and see how this works. We'll start at 316. For God so loved the world. Some people just stop right there. <laughs> that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's great news. We'll keep going, though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Can we stop right there? We could even keep going. But in order that the world might be saved through him. I like that too. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But let's stop right there. That would be a good place to stop, right? Because that, in fact, is where most people want to stop. Because if you stop right there, you can conclude, hey, we're all going to be okay. God sent his son not to condemn, 
but to save. And isn't that a breath breath of fresh air? Right? Because a lot of my Christian friends, they keep talking about sin and hell and judgment, all these depressing things. But look, it says right here, didn't send the Son to condemn. Whew. It's just as simple as believe in Jesus and you won't be condemned. It's actually pretty interesting. If you read the rest of John's gospel, you can come across what would appear at some level to be a contradiction. Because later in chapter 5, and then again in chapter 9, John's going to record Jesus saying that he will be involved in judgment. That he has been given the authority to judge. Some folks get all hot and bothered by those seeming contradictions, but I'm not bothered about it. Because John's talking here about his purpose for which Jesus came. The the purpose. Here's here's the driving force. Here's the motivation. The Father sent his Son, and that purpose was not to condemn. The purpose was, as you see at the end of verse 17, to save. But John's reasoning here is, is pretty clear. It wouldn't even make sense to send the Son to condemn. Why? Because the world was already condemned. That job was already taken care of. That's the less popular, often unheard, second half of verse 18. Right? The unbelieving world is condemned already. So it's completely unnecessary for God to send his son to condemn what was already utterly ruined. And so to come to John 3.16 and even 17 and to think somehow, oh, we're all going to be okay. There's not going to be any of that depressing judgment and condemnation is both to miss what came before and what comes after. You would have to miss an enormous part of the scriptures that came before the the first half of the conversation, if you will, where God's word is very explicit that we're not born in some neutral state. We're not born with scales waiting to tip based on how we lived our lives. Will this one be a good one or will this one be a bad one? We're not born in a neutral state. We're definitely not born good with the potential to be corrupted later. No. Scripture says we're already condemned. We're not children of innocence. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that by our very nature, we're children of wrath. So the purpose of the Son coming is not to say, trust in me or else I will condemn you. That's not what's going on here. His purpose in coming is to save those, to rescue those who are already condemned. He comes and he says, hey, buddy, you're condemned. You're a goner unless I rescue you. You're going to suffer eternally for your sin and rebellion unless you receive my free gift. My gift that, that, that I suffered your punishment. That I was condemned in your place. That I died the death that your rebellion deserved. <clears throat> Trust that, and I'll remove 
your condemnation from you. But reject that and you'll face what you already have coming to you. Do you see the difference there? That, that's very different from believe in me or I'll condemn you. The very last verse of, of John chapter 3 sums it up well. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It, it, it remains because it was already there. Right? Wrath is, is on us. Right? Reject the Son that God sent and that wrath stays. Receive the Son and that wrath is removed. So no, we're, we're not all okay. Many, Scripture says, many will in fact reject the offer of God's Son and will face the resulting condemnation and wrath of God. But for those who do receive the gift, why? Why do they receive the gift instead of rejecting it? It's a rather large question that I think you need to wrestle with until you can answer it. If you claim to be a Christian, a Christ follower this morning, if you say, I've received the gift of God's Son, I'm trusting in who He is and what He's done for me as a substitute, but then you see your neighbor or your coworker, your friend, your family member who has not received that gift, answer me this, why? Why does one receive and another reject? What makes the difference? Is it intellect? Is it your upbringing? Right? Is it, is it how mama raised you? Is it how moral you've been? Why does one person remain under condemnation while another person experiences rescue from that condemnation? I think this text points us in the right direction. Look at verse 19. What exactly is the condemnation in the first place? Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. Right? Different translations pick judgment or condemnation at different times. It's the same root word here, judgment and condemnation, one used as a verb, um, one used as a noun that we saw in verse 18. This is the judgment. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and we saw back in the early part of John 1 who the light was, that, that God sent His Son, the Word, who was light. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light. See, the, the already condemnation that we're dealing with here is that by nature we are haters of the light and lovers of darkness. We're all screwed up. It's, it's like the quote if you read it on the front of the worship folder. We hate what we should love 
and we love what we should hate. That's, that's our natural bent. That's our instinct because of the fall. It, it happened that day in the garden. It all started there when they acted out of their rebellious hearts and they ate. What did they immediately realize? Oh my gosh, we're naked. They were exposed. They were, they were ashamed and they needed to hide. God calls to, to them in the garden, Adam, Eve. They were cowering. They, they had hidden themselves. We see that in verse 20 of our own passage today. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's the problem. That's the condemnation. We love darkness and hate the light God has sent. Now, go back to my question. Why do some receive the light? Why do some experience rescue from their condemnation? That's what verse 21 says is talking about not rejecting the light, but coming to the light, right? But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that verse says. So that, that does what is true is, uh, we think, a pretty common Jewish expression just for doing the right thing, doing the honorable thing, right? Coming to the light, that's the right thing to do. But it's something that few people do. So that's my question. Why do many, many more reject the light than come to the light? What makes the difference? Well, if the natural bent of our hearts is to hate light, what causes some to come to the light? The heart that hates light and loves darkness somehow has to become a heart that loves light and hates darkness. So how can the natural bent and inclination of the human heart be overcome? You've got to have a new heart. You don't just up and decide one day, say, you know what? I think I'm going to love what I hate and hate what I love from this moment. You don't do that. Nobody does that. No, to overcome the natural condition of the human heart, you need a supernatural intervention. Do you remember the context of these verses? These verses, this paragraph, has a larger context. Jesus has been talking to a guy named Nicodemus. A very moral and upright and learned and scholarly guy. A religious leader, no less. And he says, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God until you've been born again. Until you've been born from above. Until, in essence, you have a new heart. And when that happens, well, then you're going to come to the light. And when you do, when you come to the light with that new heart, verse 21, the second half of it, it's going to show. NAS says it's going to manifest. It's going to be clearly seen that God's been at work here. Friend, if you profess to be a Christ follower this morning, I hope you don't think that was your idea. 
Because that idea was born in the mind of God and He carried it out. He is who makes the difference. He is who makes the difference between those that reject and those that receive, between those that are rescued from their condemnation and those on whom His wrath remains. Now, it's controversial, I know. Might really give you pause, really might make you think, and that's good, and that's something this Gospel of John is going to cover so much more in the future. Not today. One last group of people to apply these verses to, and that's the group that think that these verses don't apply to them. Because these verses are about salvation, and well, that's already happened to me. But let me tell you this. Someone here this morning is having an affair. Perhaps several of you. You're having an affair with darkness. You came to the light probably years ago. He's your one true love. Or at least he was supposed to be. But you've been having a little fling with darkness lately. And you and light have been growing further and further apart because you know that when you're close to him, you feel exposed. You feel ashamed. Now, I want to make a distinction here, so listen carefully. When you first came to the light, when God intervened supernaturally, and gave you a new heart, allowing you to love the light instead of the darkness for the very first time. When that happened, that change happened in an instant, but it was not completed in an instant. The completion of that change, the carrying out of that change, will be a work of God's grace for the rest of your life until the day that you die or Jesus comes back, right? That, that mixture, that battle of loving light and darkness, the war that's going on inside of you, that's a natural part of the Christian life. But the slow and steady progress over time in that battle will find you loving light a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and finds you hating darkness a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So that's not what I'm talking about here. That's the normal struggle for the Christian. What I'm talking about this morning, what I, this having an affair with darkness, sounding a warning here for those who are, is that the progress in that battle has been reversed. And you're loving darkness a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And you're loving light a little bit less, and a little bit less, 
And I have no idea what your affair might be this morning. It might be an actual affair. It might be an affair that you're having just in your mind and in your heart. This marriage, it's not what it's cracked out to be. I'm checked out. I'm done. You might be loving darkness in what you're looking at on your computer screen or on the device that you hold in your hand. You might be loving darkness in harboring the bitterness that you've allowed to take root. And you feel it's your right to hang on to that rather than to forgive. Your love affair with darkness could be any of a thousand things. If that's where you find yourself this morning, I have two things for you. One is a warning and one is an offer of hope. The warning is that you cannot think this is not a big deal. Don't assume you're okay. Don't assume or take the chance that it will get better on its own. If this reverse progress continues, you may eventually prove yourself to have never really loved the light at all. You might prove that you never had a new heart in the first place. But I also want to offer hope to you this morning. The hope is that light has come. And that light has power over the darkness. He defeated it. He reigns over it. And whoever trusts in the light, verse 18, is not condemned. That is hope for you this morning. Call on him. Cry out to him. New and afresh. Allow him to expose the darkness, thereby weakening its power. Maybe even part of your crying out to Jesus and exposing that darkness would be talking to another believer. Talking to an elder. Coming and talking to me. Now, perhaps as you come to the table this morning, you'll bring with you those feelings that you still have for the darkness at times. Lord, I still find myself loving this darkness and I hate it. Would you help me? Would you help me to love it less and love light more? That's the point of the table. That's what you need from the table this morning. In fact, all three of those groups that I mentioned, there's something for you here at the table. Y'all, this table is a great reminder that we're not all okay. Somebody had to be broken. Somebody had to shed his blood for our not okayness. It's a great reminder that the body and the blood that's represented here, not our idea, not our doing. His initiative. His reaching out to us, not our reaching up to Him.
something that without a new heart, we'd never put our faith in. It'd be the dumbest idea we'd ever heard of were it not for a new heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the second half of the story is just as much good news as the first half. That your work of grace to rescue and to redeem, to pluck out from among those who were already condemned a people for yourself, daughters and sons that you decided in eternity past to adopt into your family. Father, I pray for those here this morning that find themselves in one of those three groups. Father, I pray the truth of your word that we're not okay unless we're rescued would would come to bear. I pray the truth that this was not our doing, not even our belief was our doing, but it was your grace and your mercy. And oh, Father, I pray for those in an affair with darkness this morning that you'd rescue again and afresh, that you'd grant the power of our union with Christ new and afresh, that you'd exert power over darkness new and afresh, that you'd exalt the Lord Jesus in the process and show what a great, great rescuer he is. How marvelous is the light that is Jesus. Prepare us now, Father, to come to the table. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you now please stand?